Hi, you're listening to the New Life Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, brought to you from the teaching team at New Life in North Lincolnshire. Hey, it's good to see your smiling faces. So, um, mystery, mystery. Do you know, I love a good mystery. And one of the great things about the Christian faith is we are involved in an eternal mystery. And as we learned last week, right at the beginning of our mini-series called Three in One, which as you may well guess is about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Last week we spent quite a bit of time using that word mystery and understanding that as Christians we have to embrace mystery because we can't explain it. Some things are mysterious to to us just when we come to church, aren't they? I was thinking this morning as we were singing some of the songs, and there's a song we sang earlier, and it has that line in it, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Now, all you folk who've been around church for eons, you know what that means. But if you're a newcomer to church, it sounds like you've just come to an abattoir. Let's face it, it does, doesn't it? You see, you come in and there's these little mysteries to overcome. And I would say to anyone who is new here, if there's anything that you don't understand on the platform, look around for someone who looks like they've been around forever and grab them and say, what on earth was that all about? We had a bit of fun with the, uh, the worship band last week, didn't we, in the afternoon. And there's a great song we all sing. In fact, it's one of the songs where you all really get into it. It's called Cornerstone. Gee, Christ alone, corner, and you're all, and your hands are in the air. And it's got this line in it, my anchor holds within the veil. How about that for a mixed metaphor? See, even I don't know what that means. I've got to go and look that up. My anchor holds within the veil. And there are these little mysteries we've got to overcome to find out more about what this whole faith thing is about. But there is no greater mystery then when we come and try and make some sense of the Trinity. And as I mentioned last week, it's not my attempt in this uh, series to explain the Trinity because the Bible doesn't even try and explain it. It's not my job to even teach the Trinity because the Bible doesn't teach it. What the Bible does is it reveals it. It reveals it. As you read the whole story throughout the Bible, as you, as you try and follow the plot line throughout the Bible, interweaved through it all is this wonderful thing about God being one, yet being three. And it's just revealed, never described, never explained, never taught, just there. And I hope in some way that maybe uh, last week, when we looked at these particular two things, uh, here are two things I mentioned last week. One, God is spirit. Can you say that out loud? God is spirit. And he's not lots of other things that we might be more comfortable him being. Usually smaller things, usually more human things, usually a bit more like you. He's not that. God is spirit. And we learned that actually you can't put God in a box. You can't fit God into a Sunday or a Wednesday evening or your devotional time. God is truly the only person who is awesome, right? Awesome. And I know we say to each other, you're awesome. 
In fact, we had another little chat this morning with the worship team before we came out uh, for the service. We were thinking about that old word, which now means something different than what it used to mean, awful. Right? See, awful used to mean that the thing you're talking about was full of awe. That's what it originally meant. Or some means that they've got some awe. So I don't know about you, but that makes God awful, right? God, God is full of awe. You might have some awe, but he's full of it. So I don't know whether we need to recover and redeem the word awful. I don't know. Maybe we'd better park that and leave it to one side. But God is the only one who is truly full of awe. And that was the second we learned, the second thing we learned. God is awesome. And even though, as people who are discovering more about following Jesus, and we're going to hear a bit about that today, and the intimacy that comes with that, and the ability to talk to Jesus as you would a friend, even though, even though we revel in that, we have to remember that God is full of awe and we revere him. We revere him. I think it was John who told me last week. He said, God is almighty. He's not almighty. Right? And, and I sometimes have this little line in my mind where Jesus is my friend, but he's not my buddy. Right? And you think, why is that important? And sometimes it's just important in our minds and in our spirits to realize that there is still got to be a sense of reverence and respect and even fear of Almighty God, even though also he's our friend. You see, your mate, your pal, your buddy might let you get away with some things that are unrighteous. But a true, 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 true friend won't. And that's what Jesus is. So this week, we're moving on to the second person of the Trinity, which is God the Son. And uh, you will remember that I'm basing this whole little series in the first few verses of John chapter 4. Let me set the scene for you. There's Jesus. He's leaving the south part of Palestine and he's moving a bit further north and he takes a funny route which means that he has to go through a place called Samaria and in Samaria he arrives at this place and he is tired he is weary and the disciples go off and they get some food and he stays by by the side of a well in this town called Sikar in Samaria, and he meets a woman there, and a conversation ensues. And in that conversation, the Trinity is not explained, it's not taught, but it's revealed. And last week, we learned that in the middle of that conversation, Jesus said these three words to the woman, God is spirit. And that was enough for us to learn something powerful last week and I hope this week we can learn something as well. So this is what's going to happen. In a second you're going to hear a bit of audio being played to you. It's a famous 
actor reading that part of the Gospel of John. Straight after that's been read, you'll hear some music kick in. A, a, a song will just flow into that. It's Holy, Holy, Holy. It was recorded a few weeks ago by Cheryl, by Lucy, and by Sarah. And you'll hear them singing. But during that song, I want you to, uh, as you did last week, so now you should be used to it, to break into little huddles. You can go anywhere in the building, but you've only got four minutes to do it. And I want you to chat about this question. The question is this. When you close your eyes or pray and you think about the Son of God, what do you imagine in your mind? When you close your eyes or pray and you think about the Son of God, the Son of God, S-O-N, Son of God, what do you imagine in your mind? Have you got that as a question? Okay, let's hear the Bible passage being read and then I'll, uh, I'll give you instructions to break into groups. Jesus, tired from the journey, sat down by the well. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Great. Well done, everyone. Nice buzz in the house. I managed to hear what a couple of groups were saying. So the question was this. Uh, when you think about the Son of God, what do you picture in your mind? I'm not going to have any uh, feedback in the house this morning. I got some feedback over Facebook and over Twitter during the week as I asked that same question. Very interesting responses. The most out there response was someone said whenever they close their eyes, they imagine just a large piece of bacon. Um, which is just really strange. That was Chris McDavid, by the way, just so you know that. Okay, so, um, but I think that was the most out there response. And then there were a whole range of responses, usually centered around Jesus Christ. Usually centered around Jesus Christ. And yet in the question, if you notice, it doesn't mention Jesus anywhere, does it? doesn't mention Jesus anywhere. It says, when you think about the Son of God, what do you picture in your mind? So I want to start with that because whenever, remember, we're talking about three in one, the Trinity, we can't help but draw everything from out of mystery. Mystery. And there's no point me spending lots of time in mystery because none of us know what we're doing in there. That's why God is mysterious. He's the only one who understands it. But we can reveal certain things about it. Here's the first little thing about mystery we should know. 
And you can find it all through the Bible. But if we drop to the first place, we find it right in Genesis chapter 1. The first chapter in our Holy Bible. Genesis chapter 1. There's a little, uh, uh, little verse and it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Who said something? Who said something? God. And what did he say? Let me make, did he? Let how about that for mystery, okay? Then God said, which God? The one God, the true God, the holy God, the only God who the Israels believe, the one and only sovereign Lord of the universe said, I am going to do this. No, he didn't. He said, we are going to do this. And what that tells us is, is about mystery, that God is plural in singularity, right? There is one God, and yet within the one God is plurality and relationship. And there it is, right in chapter 1 of the Bible, not being taught, not being explained, but being revealed. Just a glimpse of it. And you can find it all through Scripture. Now, if God is saying, I am But within me, the I am, there are more than the one. There are three personhoods within the one. And we read on through scripture, we realize this. That one of those personhoods, we as humans, gives the title of Son of God. That's the best us as humans can do. God the Father, God the Son, as we'll hear next week. God the Holy Spirit. What that tells me is this. Way before, way before in a little backwater town in ancient Judea, way before a manger was filled with a human baby, the Son of God was. The Son of God was. Just hold that thought. Don't try and make sense of it. Just hold it. See, the Son of God became Jesus. Did an angel not come to Mary and say, you will bear a child and you will give him the name Jesus? But way before then, right at the beginning of the story, as the plot line of the Bible is being set up, we see God in Plurality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Here's the second bit of mystery. Um, In the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right in the first chapter of John. This is what John writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you read the rest of that chapter, it's very clear who John is talking about when he uses the word, word. He's talking about the man who he's decided to follow for the rest of his days. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He explains how the word became flesh, how the word dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus, and yet he says, this, this person we knew as Jesus, let's, for this metaphor, let's call him the Word, and I'm telling you something, that the Word always was. He dwelt with God, and not only that, get this folks, he was God. 
How about that for mystery? Isn't it interesting that the further you dig into the Bible to try and understand it more, you can often come out understanding it less because you're digging in to God. So, two little mysteries there. One, God, right at the beginning of the plot line, says, I am within my oneness, I am plural. And then later, one of the very closest people who followed Jesus around during his days of ministry on this very planet, over there in the Middle East, describes Jesus as an eternal word who was with God and who was God. You know, Jesus was Jewish, but he was also pre-Jewish, because he always was. He was pre-Jewish and beyond Jewish. He was pre-the cosmos and beyond the cosmos. He was pre-time and beyond time. In fact, whatever box you try and put him in, because he was God, he was beyond it. But he was not always called Jesus, right? Not always called Jesus. Here's the third mystery, and we sing it every Christmas in a carol called, O Come All Ye Faithful. We sing, Very God, begotten, not created. Anyone remember singing those strange words, okay? Very God, begotten, not created. Begotten. What does that mean, not created? It simply means this. That Jesus was born. He was. The Son of God was born at a moment in time and became Jesus. He was given the name Jesus. But unlike you and me, he was not created because he was God and always has been. And we tie it up in three words in a Christmas carol and we all sing it all around the world. Little do we know how mysterious those words are that we sing. Begotten, not created. So three little mysteries that I don't even want to try and explain, but it helps us understand this, that when we close our eyes and imagine the Son of God, even though most of us imagine Jesus Christ, which is a great thing to do, there's a lot more to the story than that. The Son of God became Jesus. So now let's dig in and try and find two or three little things that will just help us before we go home today. Is that okay? And before we go home today, I'm going to let you see a little clip of a megastar talking. So that's something to wait for, okay? So I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to let you listen to a megastar before we finish today. Then I'm going to pop back up. We're going to close our eyes and we're going to pray and we're going to finish the meeting. Here's... Here's one great thing that we need to learn about the Son of God, and we're now a bit more on familiar territory. One, the Son of God became a man. He became a man. Now, you might think that's not very profound, Russ, Um, but actually it really is. The Son of God didn't become like a man. He didn't take on the shape of a human. He became a man. Fully man. 
fully human, fully flesh and blood. We use this word sometimes in religious jargon that says incarnate, incarnate. It means this, wrapped in meat, wrapped in flesh. That's where we get the word carnival from. Jesus was God incarnate. Jesus was God wrapped in meat, wrapped in flesh. Now, it's the closest, it's the closest that the, the author could get to saying he was just like you. He was born just like you with all the, the, the pain that goes along with that and all the messiness that goes along with that. He needed breastfeeding just like you. There were certain things he couldn't do. He couldn't walk straight away. This was the sovereign creator of the universe, the almighty, all-powerful, holy, true, one God could not walk. Have you ever thought about that? He could not feed himself. He became human. He didn't pretend to be human. He became it. That's a powerful thought. And do you know why he did? For us. And for creation. That's why. The, thir- the first three Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they go to great lengths. They depict Jesus as a real human. His death was a real human death. He hungered. He thirsted. He felt joy. He felt sorrow. He felt love. He felt pity. He felt anger. He prayed to God like any other person. Especially in those crises of life. Just like you do. When the crisis hit, he prayed harder. He would disappear for nights, praying through things. He was tempted. He shrank from the prospect of death. He asked questions, not just rhetorically, but he asked questions to find out information. He confessed ignorance about certain things, and he shared the popular beliefs of his age. Let me tell you something. When God says he became man, he became man. And sometimes we can have this concept, can't we, that there's, uh, there's seven-year-old Jesus, and his father Joseph comes to him and said, right, you're going to learn the family trade now, carpentry, bit of woodwork. And Joseph lays out some wood before him and says, we're going to make a table today. And 10 minutes later, Joseph is amazed as he looks down. And Jesus has just crafted the most wonderful table with no mistakes and no errors and no mess. And he's tidied up after himself. Do you think that's how it happened? No. He learned. Imagine. Imagine the sovereign God squeezed into flesh and learning how to make his first table and cutting his finger. And dad kisses it better. That amazing. Why would God do that? Why would he become human? For us. That's why. For us. It's the only way to accomplish something. And we'll get there at the end. Jesus did not walk around with a halo over his head. Or floating around two inches off the ground. He was like you. We never read about it, but let me tell you, Jesus went to the toilet. 
He was just like you. Got the sleep in the corner of his eyes in the morning, just like you. Felt the chill of the cold in the wilderness, had to wrap up tighter, just like you. God became man. The Son of God, this, this mysterious, intangible, ethereal, second person of the Trinity clothed himself and became just like you. I, I can't think of anything that we do that compares with that. Even if we were to say, do we take pity on some, some ants and I become an ant? It's not even comparable with that. You can make movies about that. It's called Ant-Man, right? That's, that's not like it. This is mysterious, overwhelming, amazing. Where do I find that in this story that we refer to in John chapter 4? Jesus and the woman at the well. We find it in the very first words. This is what it says. Jesus was weary. And we miss things like that. This is what it says. Jesus was weary. In one of your translations, it will say this. Jesus was very tired. This God who we pray to, who can do all things, who the psalmist says he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's always alert. He's always active. He's always engaged. That God... That God walked from southern Judea to northern Judea, found himself just making it to a well in Sikar in Samaria, and he was very tired. That gives me great hope, you know. Because it tells me this, and this is an important point. Jesus understands. The Son of God understands you know you've had that bad day at the office you've had that relationship turmoil there's something you expected here and it didn't quite turn out as you expected or you just find yourself totally drained and devoid of energy let me tell you God understands because he wrapped himself in flesh and became just like you. God became man. Here's the second point. God became no ordinary man. No ordinary man. Again, we can tell that from this little episode in John chapter 4, because right at the end, if, if you notice, the, the, the woman, the Samaritan woman, she starts talking about the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the Savior of the people of Israel. And she starts talking about him, and, uh, and she, uh, she just throws the question out there. And this man who she's met, little does she know, he is the Son of God, says this, hey, I am he. I am he. In other words, Jesus said, I am that Messiah. 
I am that anointed one. I am that Christ. I am the promise you've been waiting for. I am the answer to your problems. That mysterious figure that the prophets of old prophesied and wrote about, the one you've been looking for and praying for and wanting to arrive to save you from the Romans and these marauding hordes who take over your country, I am he. You know, Jesus never went around denying that he was the Messiah. So that tells me this, that although he was and became an ordinary human, he was no ordinary human. He had been expected for centuries. When the prophets of old, in their prophetical ignorance, wrote, there's some kind of human coming, the Messiah, who will redeem us and rescue us and save us. And here he is. There he is. The Messiah is coming, she says. I am he, said Jesus. One of Jesus' closest followers, a guy called Peter, said this. Peter looked at him and said, uh, you are the Christ. One of the other gospels says this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You, you are the Christ. And Jesus didn't go, no, give over. Oh, shucks. He didn't. He said, you are, you're right. You're, you're bang on, Peter. And not only that, but you didn't just get that from your cleverness. You've picked, on, picked up on something God is revealing to you. God has revealed that to you. Jesus was a different kind of man, you see. He became human, but no ordinary human. He was a human on a mission that involves you. That's what the Messiah was about. But what kind of Messiah? What kind of Messiah was Jesus? This God wrapped up in flesh. This God who was just like you. Just like you, John. No different. I guarantee Jesus had more wrinkles at the age of 33 than he did at 20. He was just like you, John. Sometimes stubbed his toe when he was walking around the wilderness. Just like us. And yet he was the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed. Come to redeem the land. Come to rescue humanity. But what kind of Messiah would he have been? Well, the answer is clear. When we read the stories, he was different than what they expected. He was not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. Do you know what they were expecting? The people of his day, his disciples, what they were expecting is a Jesus, a Messiah, a Son of God, a promised one, an anointed one, who rides into Jerusalem on a white steed with a shining sword and he rids the city of the Romans and he says hey Jewish people you are free you know what Jesus did he rode in on a donkey rode in on a donkey and healed people made people well and then annoyed this group of people then overturned these tables here 
And instead of chasing the Romans out, he died a Roman death. I find that interesting. We often miss that. The Jews expected him to chase the Romans out and he died a Roman death. Not a Jewish death. A Roman one. What kind of Messiah was Jesus? Not the kind that people were expecting. How do we find out more about that and why does it matter to you and me today? Here we go. Are you ready? I'm going to finish on this thought. We think Jesus was about 33, 33 and a half when he died. Jesus lived for about 1,740 weeks. Okay? If, it was a, if he was dead on 33 and a half, it was 1,742 weeks. The Son of God became human for 1,742 weeks. Did you know that 40% of all that was written about him covers one week? 40% of everything that was written about Jesus covers one week. What does that tell us about that one week? That it's not important? Or that it's pretty important? You see, the whole essence of the mission that the Son of God wrapped himself in flesh for is encapsulated in one week at the end of that extraordinary life. And I was thinking how to describe, how do you describe Passion Week? See, in religious language, I can do it really well. In theological language, I can take you through five or six points. At Easter time, we try and explain it and we preach it in creative ways. And I was trying to think, how can you, how can you sum up the mission of God becoming like you, why he had to become like you, and the importance of that final week? And the best I can come up with is a metaphor like this. See, we as humanity, we got, we got bitten by the, uh, by the snake of sin, right? And it was running rampant. It was like poison, poison in our veins and in our spirits and in our souls. Left to our own devices, you and I are very selfish. Left to our own devices, you and I, we just seek out pleasure and comfort and happiness to any extent, left to our own devices. Left to our own, our own devices, we do ignore certain needs and pursue our own needs and fulfilling them. We, we do. The, the poison of sin was rampant through the body of humanity. And in this final week, God as human, God as human, it's almost like it's almost if I take Pete's hand, okay, Pete's been bitten by a snake, right? Now, you're not supposed to do this in the wild, okay, only in very extreme cases. But Pete's been bitten by a snake. And if there is nothing else, if I am miles from anywhere and I get to him within seconds, I can draw that poison out. I can. And that's what Jesus did in the final week. 
And he drew the poison out of humanity. He drew the worst out of you and the worst out of me. Although the Bible tells us that Jesus was willing to lay down his life, let's be very clear about this. Humans killed him. Jesus drew the worst out of humanity. He drew that poison into himself to the point of death. He took it upon himself to the point of death where a normal human just couldn't stand it anymore. And Jesus, the man, died. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He didn't go into an induced coma. He died. The poison of death and sin and hate and anger was so strong, he died. He, he drew it and sucked it into himself and he died. And that would have been the end of the story. Except that he was no ordinary man. He lived a pure, clean life. And after death, the best I can describe it as, Jesus just spat out that poison. So that it has no hold over you or me anymore. Isn't that great? And so you see people in the rest of the Bible trying to wrestle with that thought and they write down, oh, death and grave, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Death, where is your victory? I'll tell you where it is, nowhere. Because Jesus sucked it out and spat it out. Where is your sting? I tell you, it's nowhere. Because God wrapped himself in flesh and took the worst of you and the worst of me and the worst of humanity and he drew it into himself and he sucked it out and the poison killed him. But after he killed it, he just spat it out. The sting has gone. Why did God have to become a man to do that? We have to go right back to the beginning of the story. God never wanted to be in charge of creation. He made humanity. He said, this is your dominion. Look after it for me. Have dominion. Take care of this. Grow this kind of stuff. Love each other. Care for each other. And we didn't. So God became human and became the only worthy king that there has been. Which is why we now talk about being in the kingdom of God. Who's the king? Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Let's stand together. The Son of God became Jesus to get God's plan for you and I back on track. He took your worst hate. He forgave us. He conquered death. He became human, worthy of kingship. I promised you a little video clip before we sing and pray. And as you're standing, I want you to see this. It's one minute long. 
It's something that is never likely to be shown on American or BBC television, but now and again, it's things like this are shown on Irish TV or little local stations. And when I was thinking, how do I sum this up, the words were taken out of my mouth by someone very, uh, very well known. Anyone heard of Bono? Okay, here we go. Just watch this, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Okay, let's close our eyes. Last week we learned this. God is spirit. Supreme, sovereign, overall, majestic. Truly the only person who is awesome. We revere him. We fear him in reverent fear. He is all powerful. There is nothing he can't get up to that is for your betterment and yet that wasn't enough there was a poison rampant in humanity which ruined you and me it ruined the way we look after each other it ruined the way we look after the cosmos it ruined the way that we have a relationship with God so God this this mysterious God wrapped himself in flesh and became a man suffering all the kinds of things that humans suffer and he lived a life that was spotless and pure doing his best to show us how to live teaching us along the way but everything culminated in one week it was a week where Jesus Christ sucked the poison out of humanity he sucked and he sucked and he drew it out and the worst of humanity killed him he drew this poison out to the point of death and the man Jesus died and yet in death because of his purity he spat out shame and guilt and sin and death and he rose again from the dead and he says this in your simplicity Believe and follow me. Believe and follow me. Believe and follow me. Father God, I thank you for wrapping yourself in just mere flesh, coming to live among us so that people like me and people like these lovely folk here in this place this morning could once again have access to you in a true and awesome yet intimate way so that humanity could be restored to a place where we're in right relationship with you and where we can learn and grow into loving and treating each other well and loving and treating our our, your creation well, our planet well, but also, Lord, where the sting of death is conquered and our soul and our spirit can live forever. Thank you, Lord. You've been listening to a podcast from New Life Church. New Life is committed to transforming people and transforming places through the love and power of Jesus Christ. Find out more at www.newlifechurch.uk